Well, I'm glad that you guys are here. Um, and I hope that uh, your time on campus has gone well thus far. Uh, for, him, for some of you, this is your first time on campus. Anybody first time on campus? Very good. Oh, wow, most of you. Okay. Well, then um, I want to say that whatever takes place in this session, please don't let it be a reflection of this school. Um, uh, that's, my, that's my disclaimer of the day. Um, hear that, Dr. Moeller? Oh, um, uh, I apologize for my voice. Um, uh, I'm going through puberty right now, and so I've got this, uh, I, I've got this cold, and I think I got it from my, my two-year-old son. He was running through the house the other day with this sucker, and, you know, he was determined for me to take a, a bite of the sucker. So I did, and I think I caught his, uh, his cold. So please bear with me in my, my hoarseness and, uh, some of my congestion, kind of see, uh, how it goes. I got through the first hour, and uh, uh, I think I'll be okay this, this time as well. All right. Well, let me lead us in prayer, and then we will we'll jump in, and I'll kind of share with you where we're going, and we'll go, go from there today. Let's pray. Pray together. Father, I do thank you for uh, this opportunity to be able to have this hour with uh, these brothers and sisters. And Lord, I just want to pray uh, that you may use this time for your glory. I pray, Father, that you would help all of us to become more like Christ. Lord, forgive us of our shortcomings, even of this very, very day. Lord, I pray that um, you would protect us, find the evil one and the things of the, the flesh, the world from us this hour. Lord, guide us, and I pray you'd challenge us and strengthen us in our walk with you, that we'd be more effective in sharing uh, the good news with other people. And Father, we give this time to you, and we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. Um, my name is Dr. J.D. Payne, and I've been uh, here at Southern for six and a half years. And uh, I teach evangelism and church planting and direct the uh, church planting center here, also with the school. And uh, so my, my commercial is, if any of you are sensing a call to be involved in church planting, let me know. I'd like to talk to you, be, uh, be of any help to you in the process. Uh, I'm a national missionary with the North American Mission Board, uh, where I do quite a bit related to, to church planting endeavors uh, with, with NAM as well. Today they've given me the topic to talk to you about um, basically evangelism in a postmodern context or, or teaching Jesus is the only Savior to postmoderns. Uh, they selected this topic for me. And uh, when I first got it, I thought this is kind of an unusual title to use uh, for this, um, this topic uh, because it raised in my mind what are postmoderns. Now, um, I had a sort of an idea of where they were wanting me to go with this topic, but from my uh, involvement with uh, church planning leaders across uh, Southern Baptist Convention, I know that from time to time I, I talk to uh, various church planning directors in our state conventions, and they'll, they'll be really excited about some, some new work going on in a particular area. They'll say, yeah, over here in this area, there's some postmoderns, and uh, we've got the, this church planning team, they're going in there and they're reaching postmoderns. And um, I don't have the heart to, uh, to say, um, well, I think your understanding of postmoderns is incorrect. Um, but I begin to just listen. And what I find out is that their understanding of postmoderns uh, are basically uh, people that like to wear black clothes and uh, have a white face. And, uh, and they're you know, pierced out and tattooed all over the place. Uh, they're basically talking about reaching people in the goth subculture. And, and that's their understanding of postmoderns. And so, um, when I hear the word postmoderns, 
what I hear and what I see is what I see when I look around this room. Um, post-modernity and in, in post-modernism transcends race, it transcends socioeconomic barriers, transcends cultures. Uh, it's not a gender-specific issue. It's not a subculture issue. It's not um, uh, a generational issue either. I have uh, shared the gospel with people that are in their 70s and were very postmodern in their thinking and lifestyle, as well as you know younger adults and teenagers as well. So um, what I want to do during the hour that we have is I want to talk about three things, and I'm going to try to do this as fast as I possibly can within the 60-minute period of time that I have. Um, the first thing I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about sort of the history of Western civilization and how we got to this thing called post-modernity today. second thing I want to talk about is um, some principles that I see from Jesus' approach and the apostolic church's approach to how they shared their faith. And then lastly, I want to talk about the gospel and how do we make how do we make this practical? How do we how do we live this out in communicating the gospel to other people in a postmodern context today? Now let me ask this question: How many of you are history majors or philosophy majors? Anyone? Anyone? Or or are history or philosophy major? Okay, history. All right. My my historian and my uh, philosophical friends in this room will not appreciate what I'm getting ready to do with this history of Western civilization because I'm going to take basically about, you know, I don't know, 4,000 years of history and do it in about five minutes. So I'll probably leave, leave something out, um, you know, just, just something. Um, and when I talk about, you know, in essence, kind of what, what is post-modernity like, how is it affecting the way people think, which ultimately affects the way we share the gospel with other people, um, I'm going to condense quite a bit down into just a few bullet points. Uh, but, you know, you've got 60 minutes, and there are entire books and, uh, uh, written on this topic, and so what can I do in a 60-minute period of time? Now, let me also say this. Um, I don't prefer to speak the whole time, but I feel that in the time that we have together, I'm probably going to be speaking the whole time. Uh, I prefer interaction and dialogue and things of that nature. So let me say this. Uh, um, I've got material where I feel like we need to go. But if you've got questions, if there are issues that come up, or if there are things like, hey, you know, I've been facing this situation, can you talk to me about it? Um, if it's relevant to our topic, you know, let's, let's, let's discuss it for a moment or two. Let's go in, in, in that direction. So feel free to interrupt me. I, I'm not insulted at that. I, I welcome that and encourage that from, from my students as well. So um, in the process, I'm going to also share with you some of my own stories of, of sharing the gospel with people uh, that I would consider very much uh, influenced by postmodern thinking and lifestyle. And I want you to kind of listen to the stories and kind of hear some of the principles of, 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 and the approaches that I use in sharing the gospel with people in that context. Um, post-modernity, friend or foe, uh, characteristics of post-modernity. Let me give you a brief sketch of uh, Western civilization. Now, how many of you on the college campuses have been like influenced by, I've been reading post-modern authors like, Foucault, Derrida, others. What what subjects? Philosophy, sociology. Oh, it was a postmodernism class. Okay, all right, very good. Um, so let me kind of kind of give you this really quick overview of where we have come from and where we are today. Uh, that may help out a little bit. There was a time in Western civilization that we would basically refer to as a pre-modern type of period of time. It was where people believed. Uh, in gods and goddesses, that they believed in ghosts and evil spirits. And so if you become ill 
uh, why are you ill? You're not ill because of a microbe. You're ill because of an evil spirit. Or you're ill because someone put a hex on you. Uh, you tell your children to stay away from that rocky cliff over there because last year one of the children in the village went too far to the cliff and fell off the cliff. And the children or the child was pushed by an evil spirit. And so, therefore, you don't go over there because that cliff has an evil spirit. It, it was a time where if you wanted your crops to grow, you go and you do the rain dance in the field for the rain. It was, it was a period of time whereby things of the supernatural was a very much a part of everyday life. And then something began to happen, and Western society, Western civilization began to enter into a modern or an enlightenment time period of several hundred years as well, whereby science becomes king during this time period, and God is dead during this time period. And so people of the pre-modern time period, they were very superstitious. They believed that they would get ill from a... Uh, an evil spirit or a hex or a curse. But we know now that that wasn't the case. We can take blood out and we can look at it under a microscope and we can recognize there's a microbe that is a problem here or it's a parasite that's causing someone to become ill. And so we can figure out this parasite. We can come up with a, a cure and we can treat it and we can heal a person. And you don't do a rain dance in your field to get the rain to come on your crops. We recognize that. Uh, there is uh, condensation, uh, evaporation and condensation of water, and they travel, you know, the clouds travel across the sky, and they fall in the form of precipitation when, when a saturation point hits in the atmosphere. And in order to take care of your crops, uh, you don't need to appease any gods or goddesses. You put fertilizer or herbicide on your crops to make them grow. And so during this time period... Science becomes king. Science is seen as the solution to everything in life. Somewhere along this time period, and some say it goes all the way back to the storming of the Bastille in France. Some would even say they dated at the fall of the Berlin Wall um, in the 80s. Uh, others would say it was in the 60s. I'm not too concerned about the time period. But somewhere over a period of a few centuries some people began to think differently than what the modern and enlightenment period was advocating. And they began to say things like this. Well, science has been good, and it's done a lot of good things for us. We can cure diseases and things like that. But science at the same time has produced the atomic bomb that exploded over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands of people. Science produced herbicides and pesticides to give us better crop yields, but at the same time, the runoff from those fields polluted our streams, killing the fish, messed up the ecology, messed up the food chain. We're now suffering from it. And so this thing that we really thought was keying all along maybe has a dark side to it as well. And so some people began to think, you know, science is probably good when science can operate within the parameters of science. Now, hang with me because we're going to talk about how this plays out practically in personal evangelism in just a moment. So, what be, so, for example, let me give you this sort of metaphor to think about. If you're a baseball fan, here's my baseball diamond. I apologize for how bad it looks. It's not really a diamond. It's more of a rom, rhombus. Um, but uh, here, is the, here is the stand, or the seat, excuse me, and parking lot out here. As, as long as the teams play baseball according to the rules of baseball on the field, the game goes fairly well sometimes. But what happens if a few of the teammates 
on one of the teams wants to play up in the stands while everybody else is on the field? What if the pitcher wants to throw the ball from the parking lot? Things begin to break down because they're playing outside of their jurisdiction. They're playing outside of their parameters of the game. And so some began to come along and say, well, wait a minute. Science is okay if it functions within its parameters, but science really can't touch upon things such as ethics, morality, religion, philosophy. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so maybe there is something supernatural about the universe around us that science has ruled off as God being dead. Maybe there's something there. And so we enter into a period of time whereby people begin to be thinking in terms of what some would say is post-modernity. Uh, out of the academic world, it started actually in the field of architecture and in the field of philosophy. And as you'll see in just a second, how it over time trickled down and now affects the way that a lot of folks in Western civilization, particularly in a Western Europe and, and uh, North American context, live life and think about life, and it impacts the way we share the gospel with people. So, having said that, let me give you um, a quick summary of postmodernity. Very summary, or very much a summarized form, and very brief. I've read several books on postmodernity. Um, and I tell you what, a few years ago I came across an article that Dr. Muller wrote called Ministry is Stranger Than It Used to Be. And in this article, he does, a, he does an outstanding job condensing uh, into bullet format really the, the crux of the matter when it comes to those that are sharing the good news with other people uh, in a postmodern context. So I want to share with you a little bit about what does it mean to, to be sort of living and functioning in a postmodern way of life, so to speak. And I think you'll see this as I walk through this in the lives of some people that you know and that you have encountered and that you've shared with in the past. In post-modernity, what happens is you have really the deconstruction of truth. Instead of truth being something that is discovered, in some cases, excuse me, in many cases, truth is created. And so a society creates truth. So 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, they created their own truth system and way of life to guide life. But that's irrelevant to us today because we're 2,000 years removed. We're on the other side of the world. And so we need to come to understand how do we live and function in life today. Um, um, it is almost as if this society, Society A, could say that this uh, is a bottle of water. And Society B could say this same bottle is really a bottle of uh, Diet Coke and depending on how they're defining truth in their own context, they're both right. And so who's wrong? Well, it's not really a matter of who's wrong. It's not really a matter of who's right because uh, it's truth that is socially constructed. It is, it is something that we define in our own social context. And so this breakdown of, of this universal type truth or truths is, is something that's very common. Death of the meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is a grand and expansive account of, of truth, meaning, and existence. A grand and expansive account of truth, meaning, and existence. What does that mean? Well, the Quran is a meta-narrative. The Gita is a meta-narrative. The Bible is a meta-narrative. In other words, their stories, the creation account in Genesis, will be considered a meta-narrative. Jesus going to the cross, his resurrection, is considered a meta-narrative. They're stories that contain truths that people base their life upon. 
and the way they function and live in community with other people. And so what began to happen under post-modernity was the notion of these meta-narratives, these great account of these true stories of Noah and his ark, began to break down because they were just ways that societies over the years explained how they dealt with life and how they explained truth. And so why are we all wearing clothes today? Well, at one time um, there was this couple in this garden and they did some things that were wrong and they opened their eyes and realized they were naked and so there's an embarrassment that you know factor that came into place so they began wearing clothes uh, that would be one way if some people are thinking about how a meta narrative was created but a meta narrative began to to die out in this period of time and the texts the books the, any writings behind those truth claims are basically just put down they're not seen as great things of the past as they used to be uh, so the Bible is not so significant, the Quran is not so significant, the Gita is not so significant, the Tao is not so significant, because they all contain these grand stories in them, and these grand stories were only relevant to people long ago in their social times of the day, and so there's this demise of the text that is occurring. Follow it on out with me here. So if there's really no universal truth claims out there telling you how to live life, telling you how to function ethically, morally, spiritually, then what begins to happen? Well, what begins to happen is this dominion of therapy, whereby I start to live life according to what makes me feel good. And so anything that doesn't make me feel good, I don't really want to live life by that, because after all, isn't life about living according to pleasure? And so if there's something that's not pleasing to me, I just don't follow that way, and I do what makes me feel good. So... Therefore, if there's any authority, figure, or institution, or book, article that's out there that's claiming to be true and it makes me feel uncomfortable, then that's unhealthy for me because those truth claims are only good for certain people, not for me. Why? Well, it doesn't make me feel good. And who are you to say that you're right? Why am I not right? Because truth is socially constructed. So what we construct in my environment, totally different than what you do in the first century. And so a decline of authority comes down to play. How many people have you talked to about Christ and they say something like this? Oh, I am a spiritual person, but not what? Religious. See? You know, you see as well. I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. Not religious. What does that mean? What does it mean to be not religious? It typically means that I don't have any attachments to an, an institutionalized religion expression. Part of it is because of this decline in authority. Because these institutionalized religions, all they do is what? Take people's money, they lie to people, they keep them in bondage, they tell them one thing, and they tell them how to live life, and it makes them miserable all their lives. And so, why do I want anything to do with that? You follow it on out and practically you see this displacement of morality happening. So people begin to live, in many cases, what we read about in the book of Judges, as they see fit in their own eyes. So that is just a very, very, very brief glimpse of how this way of thinking, postmodernism, has influenced society in the United States in particular. Now... With that in mind, let's spend a few moments talking about 
some personal evangelism characteristics of Jesus and the apostolic church. Because here, here is my big concern. <clears throat> um, my big concern is that a lot of people will approach teaching postmoderns about Jesus as a canned method, a canned approach. That you have to say this and say this and say this. In other words, in sharing your faith, you have a very canned approach. Now, I believe in canned approaches as ways to learn how to share the gospel. So I encourage people to learn Evangelism Explosion. I encourage people to learn uh, CWT. I encourage people to learn you know, Share Jesus Without Fear. Uh, I've trained Becoming a Contagious Christian. I've trained people in those resources as well. But here's the thing, and it becomes more and more important today um, than what it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago in sharing our faith with other people. And that is, as we'll see in just a second, I believe Jesus and the Apostolic Church used some principles that are universal for us today in our sharing. And it wasn't so much a canned approach. And it's critical for reaching postmoderns today. And you'll see this in just a second. So, having said that, let's talk for a few minutes about the following. I'm going to um, quote some passages of Scripture, reference some passages of Scripture that you can go back and look up later on. For the sake of time, I won't look them up because there's so many of them. But let's begin by thinking about this. When you look in the New Testament, and in the book of Acts primarily, what do you see? You see Jesus and the apostolic church beginning where people were in their spiritual journeys. All right? So, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, John 3. And Nicodemus asks Jesus a question, and Jesus responds by telling him what? You must be born again. Now, what was Nicodemus basing his entire religious system upon? Laws. Whose laws? Mosaic law. Who had the Mosaic law? Jews. Who were the Jews? Children of who? Abraham. And so I'm okay, Jesus, right? Because I have been born a child of Abraham. Nicodemus, I tell you, you must be born again. Well, that's interesting. What are you talking about? And so John chapter 4, one chapter later, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. And so she comes out to draw water, and he says to you, I tell you, woman, you must be born again. Right? He doesn't. Why not? I mean, isn't that what we're always supposed to talk about? Because after all, I mean, every time you go to a ball game, someone's holding up John 3.16 and you must be born again, you know, signs, you know. By the way, how many times has Jesus talked to other people about being born again? I'll let you look that up. And I think you'll be surprised. What does he talk to the woman at the well about? Living water. That I am the living water. She's out to get a drink. That's her felt need. And he meets her where she is, and he begins to talk to her about living water. And she says, well, no, wait a minute, this is kind of strange, this living water thing. This is kind of getting a little spiritual here. What's going on here? But he meets her where she is. Philip, Acts chapter 8. 
He's at this great awakening in Samaria. The Holy Spirit says, go out into this desert area. Uh, he goes out there. He sees this big caravan coming back from Jerusalem, heading south to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian eunuch is a uh, treasurer for the Queen of Candace. And all of a sudden, the Spirit says, run alongside. And so he's you know, got this crazy picture of this guy like running alongside this, you know, this big caravan out in the middle of the desert somewhere. And the Ethiopian is reading something. What's he reading? He's reading from Isaiah. And so Philip stops and he says, sir, are you born again? Oh, no, sorry. Uh, have you had the living water? No. What does he do? What are you reading? Do you understand it? Well, no. Well, come on up here and tell me about this. And, it's, and Luke records there, and right there, beginning with Isaiah, he basically shared Christ with this man. He met him where he was in his spiritual journey. So I go into Supercuts one day to get a haircut. All right? And, um, um, yeah, I've got, I've got these haircut stories. You know, I used to read these books written by these evangelists, and they were always airplane stories. You know what I'm talking about? You get on the airplane, I sit down with this person, I start sharing the gospel, and we take off, and we fly for ten minutes, and then we land, and I've led them to Jesus before they get to the next terminal. And, you know, I, and it's like that story after story. I never had those experiences. I've got, you know, I've got some airplane stories. I, it didn't have, it doesn't happen to me, okay? Um, uh, but I've got some haircut stories. Uh, but I want you to understand when I share these stories, these are just kind of fresh. I've got others I can share with you as well. It does, it, you know, I, I share my gospel out, I share the gospel outside of supercuts, okay? Um, so I'll go in supercuts one day, alright? I'm just, I'm praying for an opportunity to talk with this girl who's cutting my hair. A young girl, she's probably in her 20s. And, um, um, you know, living with the guy, actually, um, yeah, she's living with a guy, you know, not married to him. Um, she's great with child, very, very pregnant and, uh, still cutting, cutting hair and, um, um, uh, but very postmodern in her thinking and way of life. And I'm praying for an opportunity to talk to her. And I don't remember how we got on the conversation of religious things. It may have been because she found out that I was a professor at a seminary or something. I don't know. But I was praying for an opportunity. She, we began to talk and I just began to share her, share with her my story of how I came to follow Jesus. Now, lesson one. In postmodern witnessing, your story is critical. It's more critical now than I think it's been in many, many years in the United States. Based on what I just shared, why do you believe your story, your testimony, is as important as it is in witnessing to postmoderns? Right. They can't refute it. And what did you say? That's right. Because it's truth for you. And I'm interested in hearing about truth. I may not agree with it. I may not um, accept what you have to say. But you are a source of authority. You've experienced the truth in your life, and I need to hear it. And so your story, your experience of how you've come to follow Jesus is extremely important. So I share with her my story, and then I ask her a question. And I encourage people to learn to ask questions. One of the things I think we see in, in Jesus in his witnessing is that he asks questions all the time. And I find myself doing a lot of question asking when I'm sharing my faith with people. And I'm, by the way, I'm not an extrovert. Uh, my wife calls me an introvert, so I'm not like one of these guys that, you know, is extremely, you know, outgoing and things like that. Um, but I ask her this question after I share this story, and I ask her, and here's the question: Have you ever had anything like this to ever happen to you? Or I've probably said it like this: um, Have you ever experienced anything like this? And her response was, oh, yes, oh, yes, just last night. 
And I'm thinking, oh man, this is great. She said, yes, just last night I had a dream. And I'm thinking, what? I didn't say anything about a dream. I was talking about following Jesus. And, and But here's what I did. I said, I said, really? I said, tell me about this dream. Ask your questions. Let people share out of their spiritual journey, where they are. And so she begins to share. She said, last night I was sleeping on the sofa. She said, I sleep on the sofa because I can't get comfortable in bed because I'm, I'm very pregnant at this point. She said, I was sleeping on the sofa. And she said, I was having a nightmare. She said, it was so bad that I, I rolled off the sofa and fell onto the floor and I woke up and I was crying. And she said, I, was, I could not stop crying even after I woke up. She said, I called my mother, who was a spiritual woman, and I told her what was in my nightmare. And it went as follows. She said, in this dream, I saw there was some man who was after me and he was trying to kill me. And I was running. He was killing all these other people. And so... At the end of the dream, I got to see his face, and it was the devil. And she said, I told my mother this, who was a religious woman, and she responded by saying this, Honey, what have you done that is so wrong that the devil is after you? And her response was, Mom, I have no idea because I don't know of anything I've done wrong. Now, I could have said, all right, lady, you're a fruitcake. You've been sniffing too much aerosol and that stuff you're spraying on these ladies' heads, um, giving one too many permanents. Um, I wouldn't worry about that. You just need to read the Bible. Um, but no, here's what I said. I said it very, very much like this in the form of a question. I said, what do you think God is trying to say to you through that dream? For postmoderns, experience is huge. If you talk to most of our missionaries that are working among people in um, Islamic countries, you will find out that time and time and time again, many Muslims are coming to faith in Christ as a result of the process that involved a dream. Now, you don't come to faith in Jesus because you have a dream, because you only come to faith in Jesus through the gospel message. Please hear that. You only come to faith in Jesus through the gospel message of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you will hear story after story after story of people coming to faith that will say, I had this dream, and it led to me being open to hearing about this Jesus. So I asked her, I said, what do you think God is telling you in this dream? Good question to ask because the people that you're encountering on your campuses or wherever you are, they are spiritual people and they're having spiritual experiences left and right. And many of those spiritual experiences are very powerful spiritual experiences because there are very much satanic beings behind those spiritual experiences as well, masquerading as angels of light. What do you think God is trying to say to you through that? Her response was, I have no idea. I don't know what God is trying to say to me. And I said, well, you know, i tell you what. I think I know what God was probably trying to say to you through that. Would you want me to share with you? Oh, yes. And I just began to share with her from the Scriptures about who God is and how we've all fallen short of His glory, that we don't have to be a murderer to be separated from God to spend eternity in hell, but it's just because of who we are in our sinful nature. She didn't come to faith in Christ that day, not to my knowledge. Uh, but she listened to the gospel message that I shared with her. When you look at Jesus and the apostolic church, they began where people were in their spiritual journey. They didn't try to get people to where they were. They started where the people were. 
And they began to take them from that point to the point of the truth of the gospel. What else did they do? They were flexible to the context. They were flexible to the context. Jesus spends time with Nicodemus talking about being born again. He ends up in Samaria. By the way, if you read John chapter 4, you find out that the only thing he does in Samaria is go up there and encounter this woman. And then he encounters the people there of Samaria and they come to faith. And what's fascinating is before they get to Samaria, the Bible said that he had to go through Samaria. The Jewish male of the day would bypass Samaria and completely circumvent Samaria to go north if traveling northward because the Samaritans were seen as half-breeds, uh, a mixed bloodline of, uh, of Hebrew and Assyrian. The Samaritans had their own religious ways. We worship on Mount Gerizim. You worship in Jerusalem, she would tell Jesus. But they were flexible to the context of the people. You see this with Paul and the, and the people that he encountered. We'll talk more about him in just a second. But a flexibility... If you're using a canned approach in every way you're approaching people and communicating Christ with them, it's going to be difficult to be flexible because you've already got the next question in mind or the next statement that you're going to say in mind. And what I have found to be very helpful is just to listen, to listen to what people have to say and begin there and move from that point to where the gospel uh, is shared with them. So flexibility to the context um, what else were they? They understood the importance of culture. They understood the importance of culture. So Paul's at Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17. He's in Athens. Uh, he's been in Athens for some time, and he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The Greek mind heard Jesus and resurrection, and they thought he was talking about two divinities that Luke writes about. And so they said, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics said, hey, come here to Mars Hill and talk to us about what you're saying. We haven't heard about this. So Paul shows up, Mars Hill, and he begins to speak to them. Now, Paul at Mars Hill, how does he begin communicating to the Athenians? I see you're very religious. That's, that is a cool point for Paul because we're religious people. He's saying we're religious. Man, he's really encouraging us. All right, he gets a cool point from us today. All right, what else does he do? All right, he quotes two of their own poets. By the way, how many passages from the Old Testament did Paul quote? He didn't quote any that Luke recorded. How many poets did he record or quote? Two. Athenian poets. He used their cultural experiences, their preference, the things that they would connect with and would understand and started there and began to take them to the gospel. He used their, that as a springboard for theological discussion. Tell you about another lady that I've been sharing Christ with. It's another lady cutting my hair. All right, um, it is. I don't know. It just happens. Um, uh, she's Palestinian, and uh, she's been here in the states about 13 years, but first generation um, Palestinian. And I've been praying for an opportunity to talk to her for a while. And um, um, during the course of many of our conversations, I, I was raising the flag early in the conversations about. You know, I was reading from the Old Testament this morning. Or my wife and I will be praying for you and your husband during his time of illness. Raising these flags early. And I always encourage people to do that. And, and witnessing the folks in a postmodern context, raise that spiritual flag early so people know that, wow, there's something about you that's a little bit different. You pray. You're a spiritual person. And then you ask me, how are things going? Or you say something about the Lord. And well, I'm curious about this. There's something different about you. So, anyhow, one morning I got up, and it was the morning of the, of the terrible accident, the, the plane crash in New York where all the people were killed. And um, I was exercising that morning, and I, 
and the Lord just really impressed upon me, you know, if you go in today, she's probably going to get a haircut. She's probably going to mention something about that because it's all over the news. And so anyhow, I, um, I go in and uh, I walk in this day and there's something different about being there that morning. There's a guy that's already in, in the chair getting his haircut. She's in there by herself. And I sit down and I'm used to coming in and sitting down and she's usually got Jerry Springer blasting. You know, it's it's usually you know you know some ungodly thing going on on Jerry Springer that I'm seeing there. But this morning she's watching the 700 Club, and and believe it or not, they were sharing a pretty clear gospel presentation right there on the 700. I'm thinking, what's up with this? And this lady's watching this. I'm thinking, oh okay, Lord's up to something here. And uh, so I get in the chair and sit down and begin to just talk. And within five minutes of our conversation, she says, "Did you did you hear about that terrible plane crash?" And all those people died. And I said, yes, I did. And I said, you know, and, and I was at a funeral this past week. My grandmother passed away. Her next statement was this. It was, you know, I believe that when a person dies, or when it's time for a person to die, they're going to die then. And then she begins to tell me a, a, a folk story from her Muslim culture, from background, of, of a guy who tried, he did something and didn't get on an airplane. The plane crashed. His mom came in to check on him. And he didn't get on the plane, but she came in, he like died in his sleep or something. And so she said, you know, when I think it's time for a person to die. There's nothing that they can do to avoid that. So we're already talking about spiritual things. It's not like I have to, you know, say, hey, let me get my Bible out here. And let me talk about, I just said this. I said, um, I said, because she's thinking about death. I said, do you know where you're going after you die? It's just natural. I mean, it wasn't anything that I forced on her. I didn't, you know, I didn't say, hey, have you been born again? You know, no, I mean, we're talking about death. She's saying, you know, here's this spiritual experience that I've had growing up, been taught this thing all my life about, you know, when it's time for someone to die. Um, I think people, you know, they're just going to die when it's time to die. So I just ask her, well, you tell me. I want to know truth in your life. Do you know where you're going to go after you die? And she said, no, I don't. And I said, you know, I know where I'm going to go. Would you like for me to share with you how you can know where you're going? She said, absolutely. And so I began to talk to her. Now, I knew from our conversations of her cultural background that she was nominally Muslim. And I knew that in the Quran, Jesus is referred to as Isa. And that the books of the Christians are seen as good books and should be read by Muslims. Now, the New Testament is called the Injils. Just... just the Arabic word that's being used there. The Arabic word for Jesus is Isa. So I began by saying, you know, I'm a follower of Isa. I didn't say I'm a Christian. I rare, even the English, first language English speakers, I, I, I rarely say I'm a Christian because of all the cultural expectation. I always will say things like I'm a follower of Jesus. In other words, I'm doing something that's experiential. I'm doing something that's journey. I'm doing something that's moving along in this spiritual journey that I'm on. So I'm a follower of Isa, and I read about Isa in the Angels. And her eyes got this big. You know about the Angels? You know about Isa? And I said, yeah. And as I began, and I began to talk to her about how I grew up being religious, doing religion, and was baptized, going to church, things like that, and realized that as I read the Angels, that it really talks about that I there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. And I began to talk about Isa going to the cross, dying on the cross for my sins, sins of the world, rose from the dead. And and she, you know, she asked one or two other questions. And I usually have a track with me. I encourage people to carry around good, solid gospel tracks. 
because I've been in many conversations, and I found this to be very much the case, that after I talk to people, it gives them a lot to think about. But if I give them a track, it also gives them something to take with them. And so I'll say something like, you know, usually, you know, well, here's a little booklet. I don't want you to think I'm trying to cram anything down your throat. I'll say it this way. I don't want you to think I'm trying to cram religion down your throat. But everything I've just shared with you, it's really a part of my life. This little book talks about how I came to follow Jesus, basically out of the Bible. Got my email address on it. Got my phone number if you want to contact me. And I usually leave a track behind with someone after I've talked to them. But I was thinking, do I leave a track with this lady or not? I wasn't certain about her culture at this point. Is it culturally appropriate? And so, in the conversation, I said, all right, have you ever read the NGOs? We're already on that topic. She said, no, I've never read it. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, would you like to have a copy of the NGOs? Because I can get you a copy. This is the New Testament. I said, would you, basically, I said, would you like to have a copy of the New Testament? She said, absolutely. I said, do you want it in Arabic or do you want it in English? And she said this. She said, can you get it in Arabic? Because I have a hard time reading and understanding English sometimes. And at that moment, I recognized that it was so important that she read God's Word in her language than in the track that I had in my pocket. So pray for her. I am um, going to be giving her a copy of the, uh, an Arabic New Testament coming up. Uh, well, I prefer not to just because I'm being recorded here. And so... Uh, We'll just go from there. She'd probably never hear this or anything, but you know how the web is. Um, she's, a, she's a dear lady, uh, lover to death, very friendly, got a good relationship with her, and so kind of go from there. Um, but the Lord knows her. But thank you very much for asking. Um, understanding the importance of culture. They were sensitive to the fears, the hurts, and the concerns of others while speaking the truth in love. You never see Jesus, you never see the apostolic church backing down from the truth of the gospel. Though they were sensitive to where people were in their spiritual journey, they were sensitive to the fears, hurts, and concerns of others, they always spoke the truth in love to them. They didn't ever shy away from, from sharing the gospel with people. And so you see this with the woman at the well. You see this with other people that Jesus encountered. You see this with people that Paul encounters. You see this with people that the apostolic church encounters. That they always were aware of what was going on in people's lives. But they never backed away from the truth. What else do you see here? You see in Paul's presentation to the Ephesian elders in Miletus. The message that he shared. And it was really straightforward. I've declared to everyone repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual questions. Be prepared for anything in today's postmodern environment. There was a guy that came into my house one time, and we were he was doing some work on my security system, and we were filling out some paperwork, and I was praying for an opportunity to talk to him about the Lord. And just, just in a conversation, you know, it just, something came up that was a spiritual type thing. If, if, you, if you pray, if you pray that God would, would give you a, a broken heart for unbelievers, a love for unbelievers, and pray for a sensitivity every day that you get up, that the Lord would use you to be about sharing His gospel with others, that you may be able to encourage believers, that you may be able to share the gospel with unbelievers, see them come to know the Lord, that He'll begin to help develop eyes for the world around you. D.L. Moody, great preacher of yesteryear, used to say, everybody that I see either has an S or an L on their forehead, and I assume that they have an L unless I know otherwise. S stands for saved, L stands for lost, 
And unless I know that they're a follower of Jesus, I assume that they have an L on their forehead until I know otherwise. And so this guy's sitting in my house and he's filling out this paperwork. And we were ta- I can't remember what we were talking about, but we got on the topic of spiritual things. Uh, I may have just said something about, you know, this past Sunday I was at my church or something like that. And then he probably made a comment, where do you go to church? Or, you know, and, and, I mean, it just gets us on the topic. I don't, again, I just don't, you know, jump in his face and scream, you know, are you born again, man? Um, but um, I share with him the gospel message. And this is basically what I share with him. The Romans Road. I strongly, strongly encourage you, urge you to say, to memorize this. Not because you have to have this canned approach, but really this is the heart of the gospel message. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, 6.23, the wages, the payment of sin is, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And 5.8, you know, that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And then 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Basically, sat down with this guy. He was very open to it. He said, yeah, I would like to know some more about this. So we began to talk, and I just basically began to share with him about these things. And I talked to him about the difference between, you know, religion. And this is very critical for witnessing in a postmodern context. It's the difference between do and done. This is right out of becoming a contagious Christian. That we always try to do things that at the end of our life, our scales of goodness will balance, uh, will weigh more than our scales of badness, and God will let us into heaven, which is basically how all religions are operating throughout the world. But Jesus has done everything. And so I began to talk to him about what it means to confess Christ as Lord, that He's leader of your life, and that when you're believing in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you're repenting from your sin, and you're turning to follow Christ. And I shared this with him, and he listened to it, and he said, but I've, I've got a question about the Bible, and I'm ready, right? I'm ready. Be prepared for anything. I'm ready because I've been through all the witness training tools and modules and manuals and equipping things and books, and I've read about all the airplane evangelists and I, uh, supercuts evangelists, and so I'm ready for this question. He's going to say the he's going to ask me the Philippian jailer question, sirs. And then I'm going to look around. I'm going to realize that I'm the only person in the room, and I'm going to say, no, it'll be sir, sir. You know what must I do to be saved? You know, Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas. Go back and read Acts 16. Anyhow, he said, I've got one question about the Bible, and I'm ready. He said, J.D., why doesn't the Bible... Or he said, no, he said it this way. He said, does the Bible talk about life on other planets? <laughs> and I, I stood up and I said, buddy, you're an idiot. You're a stupid man. I've just been talking about this great truth and you're asking... No, I did not. I didn't do that. <laughs> I looked at him with just as much soberness as I had been and I said this. I said, that's a great question. Why is it a great question? It's a great question because it's something about your spiritual journey. You're created in the image of God. I love you and I care about you. And I'm going to try to answer your question. I said this. I said, that's a great question. I said, let's talk about that. And so we began to talk. And what I shared with him, he, he felt comfortable with that. Now, many times when people ask me a question, if I don't know the answer, I'll lie to them. No, I won't do that. Um, but I encourage you to do this. If you don't know the answer... Acknowledge, well, first of all, acknowledge it's a good question, if it's a legitimate question, and then ask them, or tell them, you know, I don't know the answer, but I'll tell you what, I will try to find the answer for you, and let's get together and talk about this again. Now, sometimes they're just smoke screening, they don't want to talk anymore, but sometimes they'll be very open to it, and they'll give you another opportunity, give you a chance to go back and study the scriptures on some things. So, when to kind of summarize all this, in the next few minutes we have left, 
sharing the gospel, teaching postmoderns about Jesus being the only way of salvation, it's not rocket science. I think a lot of times we feel like it's, it's rocket science. We have to know about you know, how to deconstruct their epistemology and we have to come up with all these answers to the relativism. Well, yeah, but you don't necessarily have to say it in those terms. Pray, listen to people, listen to their stories, share your story, share the gospel with them. When you don't know the answer, find the answer, get back with them. Love them, care about them. Let me pray with you, and we'll, we'll go. Father, I do thank you for this past hour. And, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. And um, I just pray you would bless them and empower them. Lord, um, may they take the love of Christ to this lost world, this dying world. Lord, to truly love people, truly serve them. Lord, to truly walk the walk. Uh, Father, to, to share your love with other people in, in deeds as, in, as well as in words. Uh, Father, I pray that um, you would use uh, the past hour to help give them another tool in their tool belt to help them uh, in their service for your kingdom wherever they go. Father, be with them. I pray you bless them today uh, as they continue their time here and as they travel home. Give them safety in the journey. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.